Uh, well, we're continuing uh, our series in First Peter called Against the Tide. And as, as I've mentioned throughout the weeks, Martin Luther thought very highly of this little letter. He said of it that it will show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary for you to know about salvation, even if you were never to see or hear any other book. All in First Peter, we have the whole gospel. And I hope that we've seen that throughout these past weeks. You know, the, the incredible verse about uh, our, our uh, Jesus taking on our sin himself as he was nailed to the tree included in this letter. So we certainly see the basic message of God's love for us, the, the incredible message that what Jesus has done for us hasn't just forgiven us of the things we've done wrong in the past, but has deposited into our spiritual account, so to speak, the perfect righteousness of Christ, such that if we're trusting Christ, if we're in Christ, if we've received God's grace, if we've kind of bowed the head and bent the knee to the Lordship of Christ and said yes to all we know of Jesus, then God sees us the same way he sees Jesus. And I hope for you, you go, oh, I mean, this is, this is what the Christians who've gone before us have meant when they've talked about the, the glorious freedom of the children of God, right? That we can live in the righteousness of Christ. So all of that, that message is included in 1 Peter. And in addition to that larger message of the gospel, Peter was writing to Christians experiencing a very difficult time. Uh, he was writing to encourage these believers to live against the, the tide of their culture, not to abandon their place in society, but rather uh, to be in the world, but not of the world. To be present, but, but guided by the Holy Spirit rather than maybe uh, the culture around us. And as we've seen, Peter was writing to followers of Jesus in the region we now know as Turkey. It was a crossroads of culture and commerce back in that day, and there was great tension between these believers' faith in Jesus and, and the prevailing culture of the day. So, Peter takes an approach. He, he, he leads his letter by saying, hey, remember, remember whose you are. Remember that you belong to God. And remember that in Christ you have a new identity. You've received new life. You belong and, and you have new life. You've been born again into a, into a whole new existence in, in Christ. That's the first thing he does. And then Peter unpacks three kind of case studies of real life examples where people would experience some kind of challenge or suffering for their faith in following Jesus actively in the world. First, how to live well under authority or how to live well as a citizen of a nation that, that might not share their values as followers of Jesus. Then how to live well through injustice. How to, how to live as a follower of Jesus in an unjust situation that you have no power to change. And then finally, last week, how to live well in marriage. And, and not just marriage in general, but Peter had in mind this situation where the wife was a follower of Jesus and the husband wasn't. And that the challenges, the, the, the suffering, so to speak, for the wife in that kind of situation, the hardship of that, and he unpacked what it looked like to follow Jesus in that situation. And, and all of these things have a common theme. They all uh, include some sense of suffering for doing what is right as a follower of Christ. And this was the general experience to the people, uh, of the people to whom Peter was writing. They had come to faith in Jesus and now were experiencing the ramifications. Right? Sometimes overt drastic persecution in that time 
And always, the more subtle kind of persecution in that culture, the public shaming that was so painful in a, in a culture of public honor and shame, kind of more of an Eastern culture. These brothers and sisters were taking hits for the team. They were paying a price, a real price. They were suffering. So after reminding his readers of their identity, playing out what that identity means in, in real life, Peter comes to the passage that we'll read today. And it's a pivotal passage because it's his conclusion for everything that has come so far in the letter. Peter reframes all of the suffering those Christ followers were experiencing and helps them and us see that, suf see that suffering in a new way. And, and by suffering, he's not referring to the kind of suffering we experience when we lose someone we've loved to this life. And he's not talking about general suffering in life. He's talking about suffering for following Jesus, suffering for standing firm in your faith in, in the light and presence of great opposition. So with that in mind, let's listen to the passage. I'll read it for us today. It's 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the most basic guiding principles of the Reformation was this, reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. Uh, church family here knows my story. I wasn't raised in the church and uh, I like to say I providentially stumbled into the RCA um, and uh, became reformed theologically even though I knew nothing about that. And in my first church, the first church I served, which was a church in Des Moines, Iowa, I would often encounter people asking, what does that mean? What does it mean to be reformed? Reformed from what? 
Like, were you really bad before and now you're reformed? <laughs> like, what, what does that mean? And I learned that this was one of the most helpful things to do to explain that in a simple way. Uh, reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. Meaning, we take the Bible very seriously. We hold a very high view of the scripture. And if we read the Bible and see something kind of out of alignment in our lives when we read in scripture, we know that what needs to change is not the scripture, but us, right? We're reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. So it's good to ask, what does the scripture say? What does it mean? And how does it apply? It's kind of the basics of a, of a sermon, right? So what does this scripture say? It starts with this. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats and do not be frightened. Now, for the follower of Jesus, this is a rhetorical question that, that assumes an answer. You know, who's going to harm you if you're eager for doing good? Of course, the assumed answer is, is no one. And if you're more familiar with the Bible, you might be hearing echoes of other biblical stories. You know, if God is with you, who has the power over you that's greater than God's power? No one. If God is for you, who can do you any lasting harm in this life? Who can be against you, really? No one. Uh, think of the story from the book of Acts about Gamaliel. Uh, after the resurrection of Jesus, as the story goes, the apostles simply would not stop talking about what they had seen and heard in stark contrast, by the way, to how they were behaving right before the resurrection, cowering in fear and hiding from the authorities. Now they were in the temple court, preaching, teaching in the name of Jesus. And they were so annoying to the powers that be, they got themselves arrested, thrown in jail. But as Acts 5 goes, an angel showed up, broke them out of jail, and rather than running and, and leaving the city for their safety, instead they went right back to the temple courts to do the exact same thing all over again. And the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, was irate. They sent the temple guard and said, hey, round them up again and bring them in because obviously they didn't get the message. So they appeared again before the Sanhedrin and the high priest said to, him, said to them, uh, guys, look, we had you in here once and we told you to stop teaching in the name of Jesus, yet you continue and the whole city is filled with his teaching. To which... Peter replied, remember we're looking at the book of, or the letter of 1 Peter. Peter replied to the Sanhedrin, the author of our letter said this, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now, as you can imagine, that went over like a lead balloon. And... The, the challenging, dangerous situation became critical. And the Sanhedrin was irate, and their initial reaction was, we are going to kill them. Take them out right now and kill them. And then came what's known as Gamaliel's plea. Gamaliel, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, says the text, well respected by all the people, I kind of get this sense he was a wise 
spiritual leader, uh, kind of feels like an elder statesman type. And he'd been quiet and now was his time to stand. And he said this to the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. If their purpose is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop them. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And you hear the echo of what Peter writes to these Christians who are suffering. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Now imagine Peter standing before the Sanhedrin saying to them, look, we have to obey God rather than you. This is God's thing. You nailed Jesus to the cross. He died, was placed in the tomb, but he's alive right now. I mean, Peter had done this math in his head. He, he knew what it was to stand in a situation that could produce for him terrible suffering and yet to do to do good, to do the right thing, to bear witness to Christ. The Apostle Paul put it this way, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In, in Romans, uh, uh, if, if you're more familiar with the Bible, you'll recall Paul goes on to recite a laundry list of life's greater worries, trouble, hardship, uh, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And can any of these things separate us from the love of God, he asks? And then he answers his own question. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who can be against us? See, Peter applies this great truth to the situation those Christians in Turkey were facing as they lived against the tide of their culture and paid a price to do it. If you're eager to do good, who's going to harm you? No one. Why? Because our Heavenly Father happens also to be the king of the universe. And not just kinda. When you trust the living God who is real and true, no temporary suffering has the power to do you permanent harm. Period. End of conversation. And Peter puts suffering in its proper frame, the Christ frame, the one who suffered and died for us and was resurrected to glory and honor and life forever. See, the way of Jesus and thus the way of Jesus' followers is through this kind of suffering, not around it or despite it, but through it. Now that's a problem, culturally speaking, because the tide of culture is very much about the avoidance of suffering. But our faith pushes against the tide of culture pushes against the tide of that value because we as followers of Jesus believe that there's purpose in suffering 
for doing right, for doing the right thing. Just look at, at Jesus and what he did for us. His suffering had great purpose, right? The scripture is full of, of righteous suffering, suffering for doing good because of our awareness of and faith in God. Peter wants to put this suffering in proper perspective. If God is for us, who can be against us? No temporary suffering can cause us permanent harm. Look at what he wrote again. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Now, hang on a second. I mean, we might believe that suffering for doing what is good and right is the Jesus way because it is what Jesus did. That, that's the way that he suffered. That's true. But to say that we are blessed when we suffer for following Jesus, I mean, that's a tough one. What's, what is that about? Uh, and, and, and contextualize it, would you? It's not just that we can't get our minds back into the lives of those believers living in ancient Turkey, right? This is the conversation with a neighbor or a coworker where you, you step out a little bit and you take a risk and you make your faith known and from the look in their eyes and their reaction, they might not say it outright, though they might, their response is, you're stupid. How could you possibly believe that? That's dumb. You know what I mean. I think we probably encounter that kind of suffering much more often than some kind of outright persecution. So are you blessed when you experience that? Says the scripture, yes. I mean, this is yet another one of these topsy-turvy truths of the Christian faith, right? I mean, it's kind of back, the first will be last, the last will be first, I mean, all that. It goes against the tide of all common sense and human intuition. The suggestion here is not only that there is purpose in suffering, but there will be glimpses of God's blessing in it. Uh, there, there's a, a very important idea as a follower of Jesus that is good to hold in your heart and your spirit. If we approach our faith in Jesus with the posture that we're going to figure it out and then we'll believe, we're gonna bump into problems all the way along. Because followers of Christ who've gone before us have kind of walked this road and said a much better way to approach this based on what we believe about what God's doing in the world is that we should believe first and from that place of faith seek greater understanding. So it's faith seeking understanding, not understanding seeking faith. For me, this is a very personal kind of thing because it's the exact thing that was tripping me up when I was considering faith in Jesus. I couldn't figure it out. 
And I assumed that because I couldn't figure it out, I couldn't move forward in faith. Then I came across the great verses in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own. There it is. It's faith seeking understanding, not understanding seeking faith. Why? Because as followers of Jesus, we put more value in what God has revealed than in our capacity to reason it out. Revelation over reason. It's not that we're not called to think and figure things out, but we can't figure God out. If we're going to know anything about God, it will be because God has revealed himself to us. So there's a blessing in doing the right thing and following Jesus in his model of life in this world, including his suffering. And then we come to this bigger point, I think. The reason that nobody can harm us if we choose to do good, the reason that there's a blessing in suffering for Christ Peter quotes from the prophet Isaiah, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. And the verse from which he quotes was actually Isaiah 8, uh, 8 verses 12 and 13, which says this, do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. And Peter is basing his argument on this fundamental biblical logic, which in a way oversimplified uh, uh, approach to thinking about it, says that there are two opposing visions of the way things really are in this world. And the first vision goes like this. It claims that human life, our lives, are secured by human effort. Be it the use of strategy and human power or the exercise of religion or spirituality to pursue one's higher purpose, this vision claims that our ultimate security is in our hands. It's up to us. We can figure it out. And if we work hard enough, long enough, and have a little luck along the way, we will prevail. And when we prevail, then we'll be secure. Now, if, if we're awake and paying attention in the culture in which we live, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, you will recognize this message everywhere. It's on, it's on TV. You'll hear it from philosophizing friends. You'll see it in, in books, particularly self-help books. And I'm not against TV, philosophizing friends, and self-help books, but we have to be able to identify what message is really being conveyed. What message is really being conveyed? The message that we can secure our own lives. That message is bad. More than that, I would argue it's evil because it represents a lie about the way things really are in this world, a lie about the fundamental nature of life and the world and God and, and who we are as, as human beings. The Bible says this in Proverbs 14, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. If you ever wondered what that way was that appears to be right, but in the end leads to, it's, it's this. The idea that that we've got this, that we're, we're good. The idea that we can handle 
the brokenness in our own lives. This is the vision that we can secure our own lives by our own effort, that we do not need external intervention or help because our deepest human problems are only of a scale that will be surmountable by our greatest human efforts. We've got this. We don't really need to be saved. That's such a strong word after all. We just need to work harder or organize better or possibly elect the right leaders. I mean, in this vision of how things really are, we do not need God's help or even God himself. That's the first vision. The other vision claims that our life is secured by God and God alone in what he's done for us in Christ. It claims that we're unable to secure our own lives or futures through anything we might do on our own, that we are in desperate need of help and utterly hopeless without drastic external intervention. Like a person drowning in the ocean wishing they could reach up a hand, grab themselves by the hair and pull them out to save themselves, we are powerless from the prevailing peril facing every human being. Namely, that the wages of sin is death. This second vision of the way things really are is the message of the Bible. It's the message of Jesus. And the great part of that message, the good news part of that message, is that our Heavenly Father, the God who created everything, who created you and me, gives us life right now, our good, good Father is the Father of all prodigals everywhere and is right now waiting on the front porch of salvation, scanning the horizon intently for anyone who might turn toward home, for anyone to whom he might run to give aid. And it's with this vision in mind that Peter wrote those words we read today. Don't don't fear what they fear. Why? Because their vision of the way things really are is off. It's wrong. It's based on a lie. Don't believe it. Set God apart in your heart as the one to fear, not fearing the things that your culture fears, a culture that not only doesn't know God, but actively opposes the things of God. The way of Jesus is the way of suffering to follow him. Wrote one commentator, God honored the faithful suffering of Christ and by extension, followers who embody Christ's faithfulness in their lives, even in the midst of suffering. Understanding the way things really are helps us understand and embrace suffering for following Jesus and for doing what's right. And Peter has some directions for us here at the end as to what to do in those times. What what do you do in tough times? How do you remain faithful? Writes Peter, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Step one, order your heart, right? Recalibrate. And I'd encourage you, don't just think about this. 
do the recalibration right now. In your heart, are you revering Christ as Lord, honoring, uh, setting above everything else with great thankfulness the fact that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, that he's alive right now, that he knows everything, he knows you through and through, and you've, you've given the wheel to him. Now, he's the leader, and we're the followers. Revere Christ as Lord. And then this part about explaining the reason for the hope that we have. This is the posture we're to have in the world, not just when we're experiencing tough times and suffering all the time, I would argue. Why do you have the hope that you have? Of course, we can't do the whole conversation and have everybody answer today in the room. We're too large for that. But this is much more than a rhetorical question. Why do you have the hope that you have? That's the question for which we're called to be ever prepared to give answer. It's the why question, not, not just the what do you believe question. It's the why you believe question. Why do you follow Jesus? When in this culture, it's becoming increasingly costly to do so. Why, why pay the cost? Why not just go with the flow? And, and overall, why do you believe in Jesus? What, what would you say? I, mean, I want to challenge you. If, if um, you describe yourself as maybe more of a heart person than a make an arguments person, we, we simply can't stop with, well, I believe just because I believe. That's not enough. People do need to know why you believe, why you follow Jesus, as opposed to ascribing to some other kind of spiritual system or, or belief. And notice Peter gives clear direction as to how our sharing should be experienced by other people. It should be presented with gentleness and, and respect. In plain talk, speak in a way that makes it easy for other people to listen. Gentleness and respect. Uh, you might be wondering, if you're looking at the text, there's a section in there about the imprisoned spirits after Christ was raised, he went to preach to the imprisoned spirits. There's been pages written about this and, and said Martin Luther, I have no idea what Peter meant. <laughs> Best understanding is maybe Jesus actually went to preach to some of the fallen angels. Don't know. The whole part about eight being saved by water, that's the eight who were in the ark if you haven't put that together yet, uh, Noah and his three sons and their four wives, and you can kind of piece it out from there. But that's a whole different sermon. The thing about this message is this. There are two basic messages, two, two visions floating around in the world vying for our allegiance. One says, we're not that bad. If I add a little religion to my life, I'll be good. If I just go throughout my life trying to avoid the bad, the really bad stuff, and seeking to do a little good on the side, I'll be good with God. Friends, that is false. That is not true. 
That is a lie, and it's completely opposite from the basic message of the Bible, which says we are so broken and so helpless to, to change ourselves that we need not just a little assistance, but we actually need to be saved, to be rescued from our current place of hopelessness. And it's only from a place of having embraced everything that Christ has done for us and operating from that, that vision of, yes, I need that help. I'm broken. I need to be rescued. I need to be saved. It's only from that place that anything Peter wrote makes any sense at all. Otherwise, it's complete nonsense. You know, who can harm us if you're eager to do good? Only if the author of all good has forgiven you and poured into you the perfect righteousness of Christ, which, by the way, is available to all of us all the time. We simply turn to Jesus and say, yes, God, I need what you've done for me. Please help me. I don't understand it fully, but I yield to you. Please give me the gift of forgiveness. Please pour out your righteousness into my heart, and please help me grow as I seek to follow you. I mean, that's the thing. It's not rocket science, right? And we're invited to that. Above all, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me. God, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that you are patient with us, that you forgive us. We are, uh, we are imperfect, we know that. Uh, please, God, give us grace with ourselves, give us grace with others, and help us grow in Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.